everyone. Welcome to another bonus episode of the Geek Warning Podcast from the Escape Collective, the show where we filter the latest and greatest in the world of bike tech to help you make your own bike as good as it can be. For our last bonus episode of 2023, we figured we'd come back to a fan favorite uh, with another episode of Ask a Wrench, and we've got a full panel of past and present mechanics on board today and over 50 years of experience between us all to provide the answers. So with me here today at the Boulder Groupetto in Boulder, Colorado is pro mechanic Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. Uh, and way over in Sydney, Australia, as we established not quite on the opposite end of the world, uh, is my fellow Escape Collective tech editor and ex-shop mechanic like me, Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Hello. Before we get into the show, just a quick note. If you are listening to this right now, it means you are not currently an Escape Collective member, so you're going to get unceremoniously cut off at some point in the show, probably at a good spot, too, if we do this right. Uh, while our regular Geek Warning shows are going to run every week and are free to everyone, these bonus episodes are every other week on top of those. And they're only available to uh, members of the Escape Collective, at least full episodes anyway. So that membership not only gets you access to all of our members-only podcasts like this one and Ronan's Performance Process one, uh, but you also get access to all the incredible written content you'll find on escapecollective.com. And to sweeten the deal, we're also running a holiday promo at the moment where you can get a free t-shirt with an annual membership. Just head over to escapecollective.com slash Christmas. And if you're super sneaky, you can maybe even gift yourself a t-shirt while gifting someone else a membership. Secret hack. Anyway, there's new t-shirts too. That's right. We've got a whole bunch of fancy ones. Yeah. So if if you're, uh, for some reason, have a a small hatred towards three-way hex keys, there's a shirt just for you. (laughs) And if you love your three-way hex key, uh, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm a little sad that my my Allen, not Allen t-shirt design has not been approved yet. (laughs) Not yet. It might be coming. I might just have to have have a a campaign to get that going. Yep. Anyway. A little bit of an inside joke. But yes, we have fancy new t-shirt designs. I don't even have one yet. So... Everyone else can get one before I do. Dave, what you do have, however, is a tools and workshop focused newsletter on Escape Collective called Threaded. Yes. Just curious. What do you have planned for your next one? Uh, it would have just published by the time you're perhaps listening to this. So uh, it's a yeah a summary of my very most favorite tools, my most loved tools uh, perhaps ever. Dave, you don't have to give you uh, you don't have to give away any of your picks for your favorite tools yes. of the year. Uh, I am curious, however, if you have perhaps tallied up the grand total of retail cost of that list of tools uh i i definitely put uh make reference to being uh financially irresponsible it's not yeah it's <laughs> it's perhaps not as great as you may think uh as far as a tally yeah I, I i sort of hide that embarrassment by not listing really really expensive tools there's a few oh, premium ones in there but uh yeah i don't know maybe it's a thousand dollars okay well hopefully yeah. there's more than two tools in there we'll find out soon. yeah anyway yeah <laughs> Zach, you did the bike shop mechanic thing, and you eventually decided to head out on your own with your own one-man service-only shop. You got any tips for shop mechanics out there who might be listening to this right now and considering making a similar move? Ooh, deep question. I would say first make sure there's a market for it where you mm-hmm. live, because there's definitely not everywhere. You definitely have one here, that's for sure. Otherwise, yeah, start small. Like It's pretty low overhead to, to get started. I Don't mean, like invest a ton of money in a bunch of stuff if you don't know for sure it's going to work. Yeah, it's not like you have a bunch of stock on hand here. Yeah, I don't have like a fleet of bikes on on the floor or like a big fancy space to rent or like a sprinter van. Start small, see if it works. Hmm. That sounds like a good way to go. Safe way to play. Sage it. advice. Yeah. And, and how long have you been doing this now? Uh, I don't know, five or six years, something like that. Wow. How about that? It works. Yeah. Carry on. Well, Zach, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear. It, I'm glad to hear it's going well. I hope you get another five or six years in you. 
because, well, I don't know. We kind of like having you on this panel, and it's very handy to, to uh, continue to say that you're actually still a working mechanic. That I am. Un unlike the two washed-up mechanics that, that Dave and I are. <laughs> I mean, potentially still washed up, but... <laughs> All right, fair enough. All right, well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and dive into the questions here. This first one is interesting. It is kind of a bigger topic, and I feel like we've kind of addressed it in the past, but maybe not super in-depth. Nolan from... Oh, dear God, how do you pronounce this? Chichester in the UK? I'm sure that's not correct. Uh, anyway, Nolan would like to know, how do we tell a good shot mechanic from a bad one? Uh, he said that there are some who post on here, and, and he's referencing uh, the Escape Collective Discord channel, uh, who are obviously very knowledgeable and thoughtful in their recommendations, but there are some who let bikes go out without issues or who don't give the best advice. A bit like cars, it's difficult to tell who the good guys are from the not-so-good guys. Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, not sure how to answer that. You can't just like look at a person and be like, oh, they're good. You kind of have to work with them, I guess, to see if there's knowledge there. Um, well, let me ask you this. Where would you say most of your customers come from? I mean, probably word of mouth, really. That would be my, my response. Yeah, is, like if you, like yeah. all your friends on the group ride say like, oh, you should go see this person, then that's probably yeah. a good place to start. Yeah, 100%. Because yeah. I think, generally speaking, I would say, yeah, the, the rule with this sort of thing applies with bike mechanics just as it does with anything else. If someone has a really bad experience with a, a, a certain professional or a business or whatever, they're probably going to tell you about it. Yeah. Or they're, they're not going to be afraid to tell you about it anyway. Um, but if they do make a recommendation, uh, that is usually a pretty strong indicator that they're pretty happy with it because people typically are a lot, a lot more likely to complain about something than to recommend something. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd say if you've got riding friends and if there's a riding friend that uh, you know is, is rather particular about their tech and how their bike runs, I'd, I'd probably you know, ask for their advice of, uh, who they see and hopefully it's not, not just but uh you know hopefully they're they're not doing uh you know that they've got a mechanic and they're not just keeping their own bike running but uh yeah i'd I'd start there is find the person with the the bike that's always functionally perfectly and and see who they recommend or or who they've heard of is good um and then yeah i'd avoid the person with the creaky bottom bracket as for advice <laughs> well okay yeah that's probably fair do we think that you can glean anything from how someone keeps up their shop appearance wise unfortunately not i mean i've seen some of the the fanciest shop fit outs yeah i've seen some pretty hacky work come out of some of the the nicest shop fit outs so i wouldn't always necessarily uh yeah associate a great fit out and great tools with great work unfortunately which hurts me to say i mean that does seem to apply though i mean zach i don't know how you know what you've seen from other mechanics that you've worked with but I certainly have seen a bunch of mechanics whose workbenches, certainly when they're in the middle of a job, can look pretty chaotic. Oh yeah, like for sure, I'm a bench exploder. Like, yeah. <laughs> like in the middle of summer or like whatever busy season, like you're just trying to get as much stuff done as possible and don't necessarily have the time to like make everything Instagram perfect while you work on bikes. So like at the end of the day, yeah, you clean your bench up, but like you could look like right now my bench is kind of a mess. Like I've had like three simultaneous projects going on and there's tools kind of everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, just kind of how it goes. I'm the same. And I, I like, yeah, I've got, you know, some friends who are, I consider to be very good mechanics as well who who work the same way where it's like every single tool they own will be piled on top of each other between jobs. And yeah, unfortunately, I don't think that's a, a way to see whether a, a person's a good mechanic or, or not either. Yeah. I think it mm. just comes back to word of mouth. I think too, like, this is particularly with in the age of like 
the Instagram mechanic. Mm. If they're constantly working on their own bikes and their own bikes are pristine, they probably aren't very good because they're not busy enough to like have customers' <laughs> bikes to work on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I hadn't I hadn't even thought about that actually. Like my yeah. bikes are almost always filthy. Yeah. But they work <laughs> totally fine. They shift perfectly, they break yeah. well, they don't creak. Yeah. But I don't have the time to like perfectly wash my bike after every ride mm-hmm. because it's just not realistic. Like I work on bikes all day. The last thing I want to do is when I go home and work on another bike. So I think that isn't necessarily a great way to tell, but like it is kind of a hint, I would say. Interesting. Fair. I hadn't even thought about that, but that, I think that that all sounds like pretty good advice. So, uh, Nolan, hopefully you find that helpful, but, uh, I would definitely agree that word of mouth is probably the, the strongest indicator there. I think too, like picking, like, let's say they're working at a big shop or whatever, like kind of picking the shop that caters toward the type of riding for the bike that you're trying to get worked on. So like there are some mechanics that are really, really good at mountain bikes, but don't ever work on road bikes and vice versa. So like you can't take your road bike into a mountain bike shop and expect that it's going to come back with perfectly wrapped bars. Mm-hmm. And that like, that's not necessarily a, like a sign of, Oh, this is a good or bad mechanic. It's just like people cater towards different things. So I would kind of use that as a guide as well towards what you're looking for. Yeah. Sort of like how, uh, Jim, absolutely no offense meant by this at all, but Jim over at Vecchio's here in town, uh, I would have no hesitation whatsoever bringing any drop bar, anything to him. Maybe would not have him revalve my rear shock though. And I, I would say Jim would probably not uh, offer to revalve your rear shock if you asked him to. Uh, he, he would actually probably turn that job away. Yeah. I believe. Yeah. Huh. Well, anyway, uh, yeah, Nolan, hopefully you find that useful. If you get any other questions, you know where to find us. Next question. This is a little bit more technical in nature. This one comes from Adrian in the Bay Area in Northern California. Adrian, this is a good one. Adrian's still confused about chain line compatibility and which chain rings work with which bikes. Aren't we all? For example, 50, yeah, yeah. For, for example, 55 mil versus 52 mil chain lines. Chain rings have different offsets now, further adding to, to the confusion. Can you folks address this? Oof. It's a lo- uh, loaded question. It's a, it is a pretty loaded question. And Adrian, you are right that that subject has definitely gotten super confusing, especially over the last, what, five years, I'd say? Yeah. Every year, it's some, there's a new something out. Yeah. Whatever the chart that you were referencing before is now out of date. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say as far as online references go, still one of the best ones that I found is the one that Wolf Tooth does. Yeah. And certainly partially self-serving because they do sell a lot of chain rings and people need to understand what they need and what to buy. Um, but they lay it out pretty well, I think, as far as what the different chain lines are, what different crank arms they go on, you know, super boost versus boost versus non-boost and road and gravel and so on and so forth. It is all over the place and we are way like well well past the days of like oh i wonder if i need a 68 by 113 or 115 un 71 bottom bracket or something like those days are over yeah i I would say yeah the wolf tooth's a great place to start i'd also say if you've got like you really need to consider the brand of crank you're running and uh that will change things greatly and uh, some brands actually have pretty good reference guides as well so shram i know just released a I know the person who wrote it, um, but yeah, they just released a, an updated guide on chain ring compatibility and, and chain lines and all that. So yeah, if you've got a SRAM crank, they've got you sorted, but yeah, some of these things are just, you know, it's a wild west out there and, you know, you can get the same crank in four or five different spindle lengths, which would change the the answer here. So depending on what frame you're putting it on. So it's a hard one. When in doubt, check out Wolftooth. Uh, let me add a follow-up question here. Certainly for bikes that have uh, multiple chain rings on a front derailleur chain line is awfully critical as far as being able to maintain good shifting performance up front but 
How important is it to have the chain line exactly where it needs to be on a one-by drivetrain? I mean, in an ideal world, like, like say transmission, the new stuff, like it's designed around a certain chain line. But prior to that, like I've ran on a boost frame, non-boost cranks and mm-hmm. vice versa, like kind of switch things around just because that's the, that's the crank I had or that's whatever. And like, it works. Is it ideal? Maybe not in some gears, but like it still works. The bigger thing is a lot of full suspension mountain bikes, you run into clearance issues as yeah. well, just because there's a lot going on down by the bottom bracket with pivots and such. So I would also check out like not necessarily just the drivetrain manufacturer, but the frame manufacturer in the specs usually list, we designed this frame around this chain line and that's also a good starting point. Yeah, for sure. Like the yeah, the clearance is probably the main reason to follow chain line uh, recommendations. But you know, if your if your frame's made for a maximum thirty six tooth chainring and you're you only want to run like a thirty or a thirty two on a mountain bike, then uh, you could probably have a, a chain line that's a little bit more inboard at that point. And I'd say that you you might benefit in some gears by having say that chainring move versus the intended position. Uh, but you know, there'll be a trade off elsewhere. So, you know, at one end of the cassette, the chain line might be, might be better as a result of using the wrong chain line. But, uh, yeah, the, you know, the trade-off will be at the opposite end of the cassette. So it's perhaps worth considering what gears you use most as well before you start playing around with that. Uh, and maybe also, I guess, uh, how long the chainstays are on your bike too, mm-hmm. because certainly the shorter the chainstays are, the more important it is to get the chain line where it needs to be. Um, you know, if you're on a road bike that's got, I don't know, four ten mil chainstays or something like that, you don't have a whole lot of wiggle room. Yeah, but if you're on a mountain bike that has I don't know like 440s or something like that, 450 even, and, and again, especially with the one by, you do have a little bit of wiggle room. It's probably not going to matter too much. Might affect wear a little bit, but it's probably not mm-hmm. going to affect shifting too much anyway. Yeah. But anyway, uh, like we said, the Wolf Tooth website's a good place to start. But let's stick with the drivetrain theme here for a little bit. Um, this question comes from Andrew Steele in Ferntree Gully, Victoria. A uh, long time, first time. Let's see. Each time he fits a set of Holotech cranks, and he torques the left arm up to 12 to 14 newton meters. Uh, he usually has his Unior digital torque wrench preset to 13 newton meters. Uh, he's wondering how we, how, sort of what sequence we would do this in. He said, we've discussed a lot recently about torque settings and how doing the old clickety-click too many times changes the torque setting beyond the desired target. What about the torque sequence? If you torque the inside bolt to 13, then the outside to 13, then the torque on the inside bolt is reduced to around 9, so on and so forth. What do we recommend here? And I guess this question would also apply to uh, stem bolts that have mm-hmm. uh, steer clamp bolts specifically that have opposing direction bolts like that. What do we? What, what are our guidelines here? I think this is a Dave question. You just wrote an entire article about torque wrenches. Yeah, the answer here is to to slowly build up the torque in alternating back and forth until you reach your final target. So yeah, with those Shimano bolts, if you go straight to the the recommended torque of, of 13 Nm on one bolt, then yeah, it, it pinches that, that clamp, clamp close and creates a loosening effect on the opposite bolt. And then you'll you'll kind of be working your way back and forth for a while. And yeah, it creates a very uneven torque distribution. So you want to probably go like to 5 Nm on both bolts and then 7 Nm on both bolts and then 10 and then probably 13. And you'll find if you do that slowly, you basically will will get to a point where both bolts are evenly torqued and, and neither want to move any further when you when you check them. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the advice. Uh, I personally just kind of go by feel on those until they feel snug and then I'll I'll do a final tightening with the torque wrench. And normally I find I'll get like a an eighth of a turn or a quarter of a turn until the clock, uh, torque wrench clicks on those. Uh, so yeah, it, I guess it depends on how good your feel is for it. But uh, yeah, 
take it slowly, go back and forth on the bolt. Don't just do one up to the max torque and then worry about the other. Zach, that sound about right to you? Yep. Same, same with stems like, or anything that kind of clamps on opposite surfaces like that. So, uh, what if you have an old Ritchie Superlogic stem that has three bolts? Mm. Keep alternating even more. <laughs> just keep going. <laughs> anyway, yeah. point, point being, as Dave mentioned, you want to build up the torque evenly and steadily on, on all the hardware so that you're not doing anything unevenly. I think Shimano doesn't even, doesn't even, uh, doesn't Shimano even have a little sticker on the crank arm that says to kind of torque them evenly? Or I guess that's not really super Yeah, they don't clear really, they don't really, the, yeah, outline exactly how though, so. Yeah. I mean, it's the same as like, even like a stem clamp, right? You don't mm-hmm. just tighten the first bolt all the way and right. then move on to the next one. You kind of evenly, evenly torque or like there's a like rotor bolts or anything kind of like that you kind of work your way up and kind of distribute it evenly i mean i guess in an ideal scenario what you would almost have is two torque wrenches tightening both to- both bolts at the same time and just slowly building up torque in both of them at the very same time I and mean, that's sort of in theory what you're trying to do but you only have one torque wrench yeah yeah i know uh Dave, jesse in which case you have nine of them yeah uh jesse geisler in melbourne has two torque wrenches for this task uh he's a oh ex- really he's an ex pro mechanic now <laughs> a frame builder but uh and machinist but uh yeah, I think that's overkill. I think going by feel, um, if you have a good feel for what, what a bolt should feel like, I think going by feel and then finishing off with a torque wrench is, is absolutely the way to do it here. Okay, well, that seems like a, a good conclusion there. I think we're all in agreement. Uh, moving on to another crank question. This one comes from, I don't know this person's name, uh, NebCB. Not sure what, what, what that's in reference to. Um, anyway, on the topic of SRAM dub crank removal, can we all agree that four-foot breakers and pneumatic tools that are part of the discussion means that the system is... I'm not going to go ahead and say this on the air. Uh, he thinks <laughs> SRAM needs to do better, I think. I'm not the greatest mechanic, but I can normally do all the standard stuff. Uh, he couldn't get a dub crank off without help from the local bike shop, however, and that is not okay. Should be easier. Uh, anyway, he's experimenting with the bolt material. Actually, we've, we've talked about this before. Since the dub cranks are aluminum, the spindles are aluminum, uh, the hardware is aluminum, uh, that can kind of make for some not-so-great interactions there. Rumor on the interwebs is that the steel bolts are a lot easier to extract since the steel doesn't get stuck in the threads like the aluminum one. What do we think on that? about that, aside from a few extra grams? Uh, we have talked about this a little bit before. I think uh, uh, at the old place, I even wrote an article about this that outlined the part number for this. If anyone's having issues with removing dub crank bolts from SRAM, uh, from SRAM cranks. I personally am a big fan of that steel bolt and the matching extractor cap because it does seem to work a lot better. Zach, I don't know. Have, have, have you bothered to do swaps like that at all or do you kind of just um, reef them off? Yeah, not on, yeah, just get them off. But I would say on occasion, like if let's say we've lost the dust cap or something and we have to order a new because they come with the, like the extractor cap and the bolt itself. Like I found one the other day, as a matter of fact. Oh yeah, <laughs> I occasionally see them out on trails because they do come off. A dab of uh, like blue Loctite re- stops that. If then you have like to take have out. to order a replacement, then I would get probably the steel one, just because it does work better. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything you said. It, is, it seems like a, a problem that shouldn't exist. Yeah. I agree. Steel bolts for me. But it's interesting because like, there are other cranks that use aluminum bolts and aluminum spindles and don't seem to have this issue. Correct. I can't remember now. Those threads don't seem to be especially fine either, do they? No, I mean, I feel like I'm like thinking like Cannondale cranks use that. Yeah. I think FSA cranks do as well. And like, I can't ever remember one of those not coming off. So it's interesting that it only happens. Race face two, ones. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, they do as well. East, which means Eastern as well. 
rotor, I believe. Yep. Yeah. Rotor. Th those come off easily too. So why is it just a stream issue? That is a good question. And why does it still exist after like 10 plus years? Even better question. Well, maybe maybe we'll see SRAM address that after 10 years, sort of like how Shimano addressed their crank issue after 10 years. Yeah, right. I mean, the it's difference is, is no one's getting hurt here. So it's, yeah. yeah. Correct. Yeah. The, the issue <laughs> well, is not being like, able to get the crank off. Throw their back out or something, trying to get the crank yeah, off. I mean, mechanics are getting <laughs> yes. hurt. But yeah, that's, yeah. that goes <laughs> back I have, to I the have broken tools. Or, yeah, I have, I have broken tools trying to get yeah. uh, that dub crank off one time, uh, crank bolt off one time. That was no fun. Anyway, we're in agreement. It's an issue. It shouldn't be an issue. Steel bolts all around. Mm -hmm. Easy solution. Moving on. This question comes from Quentin in Toulouse, France. Uh, Quentin's always done most of the maintenance on their bike, but they've never touched any bearings, and they've always left that for the shop to figure out. Uh, Quentin wants to change that, and he's got some questions regarding the best practices regarding bearing maintenance. Um, from what Quentin has read, bottom bracket bearings can be serviced directly on the bike without removing the bottom bracket cups. Is that correct? Uh, also, is it possible to service the hub bearings without removing them for sealed cartridges? Uh, he's also read that somewhere once cartridges are removed, they shouldn't be reinstalled. What do we think about that? And how often do we service various bearings on your bike? How often do we replace them? That's a big question. Dave, I would say you have, yeah, there's several questions here. Uh, Dave, wow. I think you certainly have by far the biggest collection of cartridge bearing drifts between the three of us. I think I'm going to let you take this one to start. Uh, I think it depends on the exact hub or bottom bracket that you're trying to service. Uh, I think it also depends on the level of tools that you have because uh, traditionally removing bearings often involved hammers and punches and at that point you probably would sort of deform the races of the bearing in, in terms of in taking them out. And then at that point, it was recommended not to reuse them. Uh, I think these days, if you've got really fancy pullers that that pull the bearing out perfectly straight and, and sort of keep everything intact and without impact, I think you can, in some cases, get the bearings out without actually causing them any harm, uh, at which point you can service them and, and sort of, you know, re-grease them, you know, degrease them and re-grease the bearings and, and put them back in. But uh, yeah, we're talking about pretty high-end tools in order to to do that with, with zero impact on the bearings. Uh, he did mention that he's planning to buy the Alt-Alt bearing press system that you've yep. recommended. Yep. So yeah, I mean, that would be one example of, yeah, uh, a system that takes, generally speaking, takes the bearings out perfectly straight and isn't uh, isn't causing any sort of uh, hammering effect or, or, or pitting effect on the, on the bearing races or, or damaging the bearing races anyway. So... That is an option. Uh, I would say for bottom brackets, unfortunately, that alt alt kit doesn't go to big enough bearings in order to work on bottom brackets. But yeah, I think uh, in some cases you can take the bearings out of the cups while leaving the cups in the frame. Uh, and there are a number of sort of, I guess, more press fit style bottom bracket tools that that will do just that. Um, so like Park Tool and Wheels Manufacturing and Enduro and a handful of others make tools just for that. Uh, and yeah, you can definitely do it. Uh, the, you could also, in theory, just service the bearing while it's in the bottom bracket. The issue there is that you've got uh, seals on both sides of the bottom bracket. So one seal you'll be able to get out, the other one you won't. I've always found that with questions like this, a lot of times people are asking them because they're trying to save some work for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's sort of the implication that I pick up on stuff like that when like that nature of questions asked. Um, however, I, always, I often find that in the process of trying to save time by not doing something, you oftentimes 
making things harder. Mm -hmm. um, so like for bottom bracket service in particular, if and when I've ever serviced the bearing itself, I've always found it easier to just remove the bearing from the cup yep. and just get that bearing on your bench as opposed to trying to do things on the bike. If, if for no other reason than the fact that it's just a lot easier to kind of get in there and do everything that you need to do. Um, it's yeah. just a much more convenient you can, setting. You can use um, gravity. So <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, but yeah, most importantly, it's about getting the seals out of the way so you can actually flush the grease out and flush all the dirt out and then uh, re-grease. And, and yeah, you just can't do that with the bearings installed. And that especially applies to rear hub maintenance where yeah, you're going to basically just be forcing degreaser into an area that you're not going to be able to get it out from. So yeah, I'd, I'd typically advise against trying to service bearings while they're still in place because yeah it just simply because you can't get that rear seal out um zach how often are you servicing bearings as opposed to just replacing them um i mean i would say it depends on the level of what the product is right like a lot of like say shimano bottom brackets or strain bottom brackets are made kind of just to be disposable yeah so those ones yeah if it's the bearings starting to feel rough or needs replacing then yeah just have to replace it um, with some of the higher end stuff, like say ceramic speed or enduro or whatever, that's well, Campagnolo. Those products, USB, I would say, are, yeah. are yeah, exactly, are made to be more serviceable. So yeah, you can pull them apart, pop the seals off the bearings, clean them out, put fresh grease in, and put it all back together. So yeah, I'd say it just kind of depends. Yeah, hmm. yeah, because a lot of those basic ceramic and Shimano bottom brackets, it's not even cost effective oftentimes to do that unless you're upgrading the bearing itself. It'll never be the same again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a lot of stuff just isn't meant to be serviced. I mean, I feel like often, oftentimes you can almost kind of tell what is designed to be serviceable and what's not to a certain extent. But yeah, I agree. Like if it's a if it's a component where it would hurt pretty badly to replace the whole thing, then uh, if you can service that bearing, that's maybe a good guideline there. I, mean, I think too, there's also like, let's say you have a set of wheels that only ever see like dry road use. Those are probably going to be fine to not really service the bearings themselves. There's a cartridge bearing and like, eventually you ride enough miles they'll feel rough and you'll need to replace the bearings but they're like not really going to need service that often because they're just seeing like what is relatively easy use where let's say like cyclocross racing where you're riding around in the mud and you're power washing the bike all the time like those hubs need pulled apart all the time and serviced and free grease and everything so i think there's also kind of use case of what requires service and what doesn't for sure Quentin, hopefully that addresses your question at least a little bit. And again, if you got any follow-ups, do you know where to find us? Um, this next question is somewhat related, I would say. It comes from Eduardo in Sacramento, California. Uh, Eduardo is wondering how often should he be doing maintenance on his rear derailleur pulley wheels and what exactly does he have to do? It's on a road bike that's only ridden in dry weather. I mean, that's, I would say, like, kind of the same as what we were just talking about. Probably not a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah, this is where like chain waxing can be quite beneficial because you're taking the chain off the bike from time to time and it gives you the opportunity to like really check the the spinning of your of all the the bearings, so like your bottom bracket, how how freely that spins without the chain in the way and then and then also the pulley wheels and yeah, I mean they they should spin. Like if they're not moving, then they need servicing. If if you flick them and they're squeaking or squealing or like yeah, not not moving very very freely, then I probably would suggest undoing the the pulley cage and cleaning out the dog hair that's probably in them <laughs> uh eduardo did not specify what model or make of rear derailleur he's talking about here but um mm -hmm. uh, what about pulleys that have bearings versus bushings i mean the like the ones that have bushings that's typically shimano like 11 speed and previous like all the 12 speed stuff use a like a sealed cartridge bearing but the the bushings there is a little rubber seal but they're not really sealed that well so yeah mm -hmm. i would say those probably need pulled apart 
more often, especially if you are washing the bike regularly or riding in the rain. Um, but those are also, it comes apart super easily. You're not having to worry about damaging a, a seal on the a bearing or something like that. Uh, and yeah, and if, if you are going to be doing that, one thing that I feel like people often forget is to put a little dab of Loctite on those pulley wheel bolts, because I feel like that is often a place where uh, I've certainly seen somewhat catastrophic failures is when someone has a pulley wheel bolt come loose that they don't realize and it sort of just rattles out yeah. and then the cage falls apart and then invariably the entire back end <laughs> of the bike gets Explodes. torn off. So just a word of caution there. I'd say if you are servicing the pulleys, like if they're squeaking or whatever, I would take the bolt out and take the pulley off mm-hmm. and do it off the bike. Yes, just definitely. Like spray a bunch of lube at the pulley area <laughs> and hope that that'll fix it because that's not going to. Well, you can just take aerosol lube and just spray the whole thing, right? right just, yeah. Just dunk the bike in a, a lube tank. Perfect. Perfect. Just It's so much more efficient. But so many people way. do that and then it's just like this disgusting mess that's now on the chain and then just kind of everywhere and it didn't actually solve the problem. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier with how a lot of times people try, you know, they do something that they think is saving a lot of time but oftentimes they're really only kind of thinking about that in a short-term basis. And that little amount of time that you might be saving initially can often compound into an awful lot more time working on stuff later. This reminds me of a, a minor pet peeve of mine, which is watching, watching mechanics put entire derailers into parts washers, uh, <laughs> which makes them look real fresh for the customer, but just screwing up that derailleur. So yeah, anyway. Thankfully it happens a lot less now because things are electronic and if you just put the whole thing in a parts washer, you'll kill it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know what you're saying, but I've, these same mechanics, I used to watch them put power meters into the parts. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm annoying I know, myself I know exactly now. who you're talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, yeah, I'm not singling out any one person I've seen. I've personally seen, you know, been in shops and watch people do this. So I'm just, uh, yeah, don't do that. Keep, you know, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're, you can put the rear derailleur in the parts washer if you really must, but. Uh, just know you're going to have to service everything that is serviceable on it. So you're going to have to, yeah, do the cage, the cage assembly spring and, and the pulley wheels and all that. So it's just, it's just not worth it. Yep. Yep. Agreed. All right. I know you were just starting to get into this. Sorry, but the whole point of a teaser is to suck you in before we cruelly take away what you want. It's the point of this, right? So mean. Hey, everything so mean, (laughs) but everything we do at Escape Collective is entirely funded by our members right now which means someone has to pay for it. And we'd prefer treating our members, listeners, and readers as our customers. And hopefully you can all agree that it makes for a better product in the end. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're currently running a holiday promo where you can get a free Escape Collective t-shirt with an annual membership. So head over to escapecollective.com Christmas to take advantage of that deal. And if you do it right, you can literally be back listening to the rest of this podcast in less than two minutes. So hopefully we'll see you back here in a bit. 